In this lecture, we are going to look at some of the theories that anthropologists have developed to explain human behavior and examine how anthropological thought about how we explain human behavior has changed over time. We'll begin in the 19th century with the evolutionary perspectives, which were more informed by society and the social context than by anthropology as a discipline based in ethnography. And we'll look at how some of these ethnocentric ideas that were at the foundation of anthropology as a discipline were rejected in the formation of a modern anthropology, an anthropology that emphasized studying cultures on their own terms, exemplified in Franz Boas's historical particularism. We'll see how this ethnographic approach to explaining human behavior was supplemented by theories that were derived from sociology, particularly the uh, functionalist approach and the structural functionalist approaches, which tried to examine cultures as entities, as kind of organisms or machines that organized human life. These perspectives were expanded in neo-evolutionary and ecological approaches that returned to an evolutionary way of thinking, but rejecting many of the more ethnocentric aspects of the 19th century evolutionism. Instead, they focus on how material conditions shape culture. We'll also briefly examine some of the cognitive approaches that anthropologists have developed, focusing on how humans think and why they think the way that they do. We'll specifically look at Levi Strauss's ideas about structuralism and some of the innate aspects of the organization of human thought. However, much of anthropology today is characterized by what's been called postmodern approaches. It's a bit of a paradox since anthropology has been postmodern almost since its inception. But we'll look at how a return to hermeneutical and interpretive perspectives that emphasize local meaning and local relevance have come to dominate the discipline today. And we'll look at how one of the offshoots of this approach, feminist anthropology, has begun to broaden some of the traditional perspectives on human behavior. And we'll wrap up today's lecture with a look at sociobiology and evolutionary biology and psychology, not really considered to be mainstream within cultural anthropology, but a perspective that I think is very important because it reminds us to ground our theories of human behavior and our understanding of the biological foundations from which the human species emerged. The foundations of anthropology can really be seen as part of a broad set of intellectual developments in the 19th century, a context in which evolution became popular, not just because of people like Darwin, but because ideas about evolution became an accepted aspect of society. People in the 19th century widely believed that they had evolved far beyond their primitive ancestors and that they were in some very important ways inherently superior to other people in the world. Uh, this idea was not in that time in conflict with religion in a fundamental way because religion itself was seen as a source of ideas about evolution. Christianity's notions about the great chain of being with humans standing in between a hierarchy of lower animals and a hierarchy of higher spiritual beings made thinking about humans and human differences in terms of evolution and a ranked order of beings sort of a natural way of thinking about the world. Anthropology engaged this development of evolutionary thought 
with what we today refer to as unilineal approaches. The idea that whatever evolution involved, it was a single path. Everybody was going to undergo the same kinds of changes in the creation of their own path of betterment. And so people like Edward Tyler and Lewis Henry Morgan proposed theories about human evolution that laid out specific sets of changes that everybody was thought to go through. For instance, Tyler thought that there were three basic frameworks within evolution. Uh, one that involved savagery, another barbarism, and finally civilization. Of course, Tyler thought himself to be part of civilized society. He considered most other people to be of a more barbaric or savage nature. Morgan had a more elaborate notion about family evolution in which he postulated that human sexual behavior and control of human sexuality had moved from some uh, primordial horde in which promiscuity was prevalent to a patterns of brother-sister marriage and finally brother-sister incest taboos and then on through um, a variety of other stages including a polygyny and finally monogamy, uh, what he would consider to be the apex of human evolution. Problems with these series were not just that they were fundamentally wrong, but that they were really derived from speculations rather than any systematic data collection. And they often embodied very deeply ethnocentric perspectives. For instance, reflected in Morgan's notion that the monogamy prevalent in Europe and modern societies was somehow more evolved than other forms of uh, marital behavior. There are other serious forms of uh, ethnocentrism embodied within uh, the theories that were developed by anthropologists and sociologists. Because of Darwin's work, the idea of competition and struggle for survival had started to become part of the way in which people discussed human differences and the idea of natural selection, that the most fit would reproduce, and survive, and pass on their genes, started to become a social ideology for domination of others. The idea of survival of the fittest actually didn't come from Darwin, but came from a sociologist named Spencer. And these ideas became part of a broad social philosophy that basically had the notion that people who could dominate others were inherently superior to them. So the colonizing countries of Europe, England, and France, and Germany partially, were seen as being inherently superior to the people that they were able to colonize, enslave, and exploit. In a very real sense, these evolutionary theories were a kind of justification for what they were doing. Might equaled right. Uh, power ended up being sort of a selection process that justified itself in terms of its outcome. If you were able to dominate others, you were morally superior to them. And so evolutionary theory in the 19th century began a kind of justification for slavery, colonialism, as a kind of outcome of this survival of the fittest. This kind of thinking is really compelling, and many people today uh, still endorse many aspects of this point of view. Uh, for instance, we still today endorse the belief that uh, a better technology is superior. For instance, what would you rather do if you encountered a tiger in the jungle? Would you rather fight that tiger with your bare hands? Or is it better to have a spear? Most of us would take the spear. What if you had a choice between a spear and a gun? I think all except the most macho would say, let's use a gun. 
But what if you're fighting another human being? Would you prefer to face them off with a gun if they have a gun? Or would it be better to have a small tactical nuclear warhead? Just take out their quadrant of the jungle. And what if they've got a small tactical nuclear warhead? Would it be better to have a whole fleet of intercontinental missiles so you could take them out from a continent away? We still have these deeply embedded ideas that technological superiority somehow justifies its use, that might is right. But anthropologists began to reject these ideas in the beginning of the 20th century with the development of modern anthropology and the perspectives that were introduced by Franz Boas. So in an epic referred to as historical particularism, Franz Boas changed the focus of anthropology from speculation about why humans were different and grand theories about human evolution to a focus on data collection. And his focus on data collection was a key tool in rejecting the evolutionist perspectives that had become deeply embedded in society. For instance, at that point in time, there was beliefs that inferior races were undermining America. And the inferior races that were generating concerns in those days were other Europeans. Southern Europeans, Eastern Europeans were considered to be different races and inferior to the Nordic races. And there was a widespread belief that this was not just a ideological issue, but a very practical one based on differences. Immigrants getting off the boats were smaller in stature and smaller in size than ordinary Americans. It seemed pretty clear that they were inherently inferior. Uh, what Boaz did was actually study the immigrants and study their children that grew up here in America. And while the immigrants themselves were physically smaller than ordinary Americans, average Americans, their children weren't. And what Boaz was able to contend was that these so-called inferior races, inferior in their physical stature, was a reflection of diet, not a reflection of some inherent biology. Boaz also pointed out that evolution didn't require eons for someone to move from one stage to the next. Uh, if we take Tyler's perspective, uh, most of the peoples of Africa would have been considered uh, savages or barbarians. Would they too, like the Europeans, require thousands of years of evolution as Europeans did to get from their barbarism to their civilization. Well, Boaz pointed out that it didn't require long periods to evolve. You could take the child of a so-called barbaric African chief, send him to London, send him to a military boarding school, send him to the London School of Economics, and in 15 years you have a civilized gentleman. Doesn't require evolution, it requires opportunity. And Boaz had emphasized the importance of understanding other cultures' cognitive capabilities vis-a-vis uh, -vis their own cultural perspectives. In Boaz's day, there was a notion that there were primitive languages that didn't have the same representational capacity as English or German or Latin. And what Boaz pointed out was that, well, if you apply the rules of English or Latin, to understand other languages, they appear deficient. But other languages aren't based upon the rules of Indo-European language. If you look at how their languages are structured, they're capable of expressing the same range of ideas that the Indo-European languages did. They just did so through different processes. And he pointed out that 
the uh, so-called primitive was not somehow a uh, person of limited intellectual capacity. If you understood the language, you could appreciate their use of metaphor and allusion and indirect reference and all the kinds of complex thought processes that were characterized as the so-called civilized people. So Boaz was the one that introduced the concept of cultural relativism and really made the emic perspectives in ethnography the foundation for modern anthropology. And Boaz's ideas persisted for many decades, but eventually anthropologists began to feel that their theoretical vacuum was a disadvantage. And so they began to adopt theories that came out of the other social sciences, particularly sociology. And one of these early perspectives was that of functionalism. And the fundamental notion of functionalism was that culture was somehow key to maintaining individuals and societies and cultures. That the fundamental function of culture was to allow humans or their groups to persist. And so we explained culture and human behavior in terms of how specific practices met these needs for survival. Malinowski, who emphasized the needs of individuals, uh, promoted what has become a minority position in anthropology. He thought the fundamental function of culture was to enable human survival. Our basic needs for food, for shelter, etc., were met through a variety of cultural practices. And while this is obviously true, Malinowski's ideas were not very popular for a couple of reasons. One was that it really couldn't explain why cultures did things differently. If humans all have the same biological needs, why don't we have basically one culture? And Malinowski was challenged by anthropologists who had come to appreciate the importance of understanding the group over the individual. In a very real sense, any individual member of a culture can die and ultimately will. But the culture persists beyond the death of any individual and ultimately beyond every generation. So most of anthropology came to focus on the kinds of perspectives that Radcliffe Brown, an anthropologist, brought, in large part influenced by the French sociologist Emile Durkheim. And their functionalism, sometimes called structural functionalism, was concerned not just with the functions of a culture, but how the functions of a culture were met through networks of relationships, in essence, institutions. So anthropology began to focus more on the idea that cultures were these combinations of institutions that were all organized together into some kind of structurally integrated system where all the different pieces, the technology, the economy, the family life, the religion, the politics, the education, all fit together in some way to keep the culture functioning generation after generation. Indeed, one of the models that emerged in this context of structural functionalism was the idea of thinking of cultures as kinds of organisms or machines. These organic or mechanistic models sort of took the idea of a, a body or a complex piece of machinery in which all the parts somehow fit together and made the whole system work. And so cultures then came to be understood in terms of these different institutions or pieces and understanding what they did to maintain the whole system rather than maintain themselves. 
When I went to graduate school, I was told by my instructor that functionalism was dead almost as soon as it was invented. That in the 1930s and 1940s, it was clear that societies and cultures could not be understood as organisms in which all the pieces fit together. In the context of war and rebellion and revolution and communist insurrections, it more seemed like a dysfunctional family or a cancer growing upon itself. So structures and functions do fulfill need for stability, but why do we end up with change? Why do we end up with revolution? Why do cultures fall apart? And why might cultures have conflicts within them? So there was a need for more complex models of culture, uh, but these weren't necessarily forthcoming. Even today, anthropologists often still think about cultures as systems, perhaps systems of meaning. However, there was a set of perspectives that were brought to anthropology by these structural functionalist perspectives. And these were a way of trying to accommodate cultural relativism to what we might call the edict realities. We might ask, why do a particular group of people do a rain dance? Well, if we ask them, they say, well, to make it rain. Why else would we do a rain dance? Anthropologists don't have an edict system within which they can accept that rain dances might make it rain. So how can we, on one hand, respect people and their beliefs, and on the other hand, make sense of why these beliefs might persist in a culture if they don't fulfill the functions for which they are intended? In the context of structural functionalism, the idea of manifest versus latent functions came to be an important explanatory framework. Why might people have the manifest belief in a function of a rain dance making it rain, and why might they persist with this belief even if it doesn't work? Anthropologists pointed out that rain dances can also have important latent, underlying, or hidden functions. The rain dance might not make it rain, but it brings the group together. It gives them hope. It gives them positive expectation. It reduces their anxiety if they believe in it. So there may be a variety of ways in which cultural practices have effects in maintaining the culture, even if they don't do what the participants in the culture think that they do for the people involved. So functionalism sort of became an underlying set of thought processes that are still very important in anthropology today, although it's also clear that they don't adequately explain all of what cultures do. In the context of the 1930s, there was also the emergence of a personality and culture approach in anthropology. And these approaches were concerned with how does culture affect the individual? How do cultural institutions shape and form the personalities of the people of that group? A predominant perspective that emerged was that the primary institutions of the culture, things such as subsistence patterns and political life and family, were related to secondary institutions, things such as cultural beliefs, religion, mythology, through the human personality. That in essence, the human personality was this mediating structure between primary and secondary institutions. And the idea here was that what people believe about the world, their religion, their mythology, their values, their folklore, was a kind of adjustive process for the personality. So for instance, 
one of the ideas was if societies are very punitive, they punish aggression uh, in certain ways, this might lead people to view the spirit world as being aggressive as well. That what happens in real life, the physical life, the primary institutions, gets reflected in the secondary ones. One might see one aspect of this being a justification. But some of the ideas that developed were focused on how the personality became an adjusting focus between these primary and secondary institutions. Another important set of ideas, and some that we will elaborate upon later, was the idea that these influences of culture, both the primary and the secondary institutions, patterned the individual's personality, that cultures help create commonalities within the culture by having similar influences upon the individual. So later we'll examine ideas about basic personality structures and modal personalities that were part of this early development. We'll see that these ideas, as well as some of the Freudian ideas that were part of the pers uh, personality and culture traditions, were ultimately rejected by anthropology. But they provided an important context within which anthropology began to expand its focus from just studying the cultural systems to also understanding how they impacted individuals. The next major set of developments within anthropology have been referred to as neo-evolutionary approaches. And they also gave rise to a variety of ecological perspectives within anthropology. These approaches were concerned with how cultures developed in adaptation to the ecology. And in particular, how cultures' adaptations, the technologies they used, were key to the broader dynamics of the culture. The underlying ideas of the neo-evolutionary model were that different technologies would produce different amounts of energy, and that the amount of energy that a technology produced would have a direct impact upon the nature of the social organization. Perhaps simply stated, we could say, if a technology only produced a small amount of energy, you would have a very simple and limited social organization. If, on the other hand, a technology like agriculture produced lots of energy, well, then you could have a very large social group. So these ideas sort of replaced the old evolutionary models, once again recognizing that there were important cultural differences, but qualifying the nature of those differences. In the old evolutionary perspective, there was one path of development from inferior to superior, and everybody was going to have to follow that. In the context of the neo-evolutionary theories, anthropologists recognize that there may be different paths to evolution. There may be a general evolution, the general increases in the complexity of a society as a function of the energy extraction strategies. So everywhere, hunters and gatherers will have simpler societies than agriculturalists, because agriculturalists produce more energy. However, all societies will not follow the same path in terms of their strategies for extracting energy. Some may go from hunting and gathering to horticulture to agriculture to industrial agriculture, a general evolutionary path. But some might go from hunting and gathering to horticulture back to hunting and gathering, and then later leapfrog into agricultural or industrial society, as happened with many Native American groups or in some cases people who were advanced agriculturalists may have to revert to less productive 
technologies such as pastoralism, herding animals under certain circumstances. So their specific path of evolution may not always be in terms of a generally increasing amount of energy and energy extraction. So some of the important differences from classic evolution were that these neo-evolutionary perspectives emphasized a multi-lineal evolution. There were many different paths that, that cultures might follow in their evolutionary progress. And the neo-evolutionary approaches also incorporated ideas of cultural relativism. The idea that just because one culture could produce more energy than another didn't mean that its energy strategy was inherently superior. For instance, to most of you it may seem common sense that agriculture is superior to hunting and gathering. We would prefer to have a food surplus that we can store rather than living hand to mouth. It might seem natural that we would always want to engage in agriculture as opposed to hunting and gathering. But suppose you've got a bag of corn and a bag of beans. Perhaps the best thing to do is to plant these for future meals. But what if you live in above the Arctic Circle? Or what if you live in the middle of a desert? How much of your corn and beans should you plant? Only the amount that you want to throw away. Corn and beans aren't going to grow in certain environments. So once again, a strategy can be better or worse depending on the broader context, including the environmental context. So the neo-evolutionary perspective sort of blended the idea that humans have become more complex in their social organization across time with perspectives that sort of um, set at abeyance the idea that those differences should be interpreted as reflecting something about inherent differences in the quality, the value of the lives of those people. One of the offshoots of this uh, neo-evolutionary approach is what's called culture ecology or cultural materialism. And it's concerned with the relationship between the primary institutions, the material conditions of life such as subsistence and family organization, and the broader belief systems of a culture. And people like Marvin Harris who have expounded cultural ecology and cultural materialism for decades have emphasized the importance of explaining cultures in terms of the material constraints that are imposed upon groups by their environment. And he has also emphasized the importance of first using a material point of view, a material perspective, to explain the superstructure, the ideological culture, the beliefs that people have. And Marvin Harris has emphasized this by looking at dietary practices and dietary beliefs in the context of ecology. For instance, why do people in the Middle East uh, consider pork to be a sin to eat? Why is it considered to be an inappropriate food? Uh, why are there prohibitions on eating beef in India? Uh, why are the Simbaga of New Guinea prohibited from eating their pigs during most of the time and only allowed to eat them on special occasions in which they sacrifice them for the ancestors. Well, Marvin Harris's general response is that these are ecological adaptations that really make sense, that the religious beliefs really are a reflection of more fundamental ecological concerns, and that the religious beliefs, in essence, are justifications for certain kinds of material relations. For instance, why the pork prohibitions in the Middle East? Why 
not eat pigs. Most people think bacon and sausage taste pretty good. Well, Marvin Harris pointed out that pigs are different than other kinds of domestic animals in terms of their impact on the environment. They are destructive animals. They are rooting animals rather than grazing animals. Grazing animals, cows, sheep, horses, goats, they eat the leaves of the grass and leave the root structure in place. And so the plant's still alive and it holds the topsoil in place. Pigs, on the other hand, are rooting animals. They dig out the roots of the plant, they destroy the plant, they loosen the topsoil, and they have probably been a major force in creating the Saharan Desert. We can speculate that thousands of years ago, people living in this region came to recognize that you know pigs produce problems. It wasn't because they carried trichinosis. Cows carry trichinosis. It wasn't because they had cloven hooves and looked like the devil. It was because pigs were destructive of the environment. And the wise people that realized this had to figure out how to keep future generations from engaging in ecologically destructive behavior. And rather than making ecologists out of them, they basically conveyed the message that God says no, you don't eat pork. Why? Well, let's see. And then they developed all the rationalizations about why you shouldn't eat pork. But it was basically an ecological adaptation. A similar kind of ecological argument is made about the prohibitions that Hindus have on eating beef. One might wonder, with all the starving people in India, why not eat cows? You know, wouldn't it make more sense to eat cows than to prohibit eating them? And Marvin Harris's response is, nope, you're wrong. If you have lots of starving people, it makes more sense to prohibit eating cows for a number of reasons that are basically ecological. They provide an important adaptation. To begin with, if we have a practice of eating cows, we have to feed cows. For instance, in the United States, something on the order of 80 to 90% of our soybean and corn crops are fed to cows and pigs and chickens. We take vegetable protein and turn it into meat protein. It turns out it's a very inefficient way of making protein available to large populations because it takes about 12, 13 units of vegetable protein to make one unit of meat protein. If you got lots of hungry people, you should just eat the protein directly instead of feeding it to animals. But of course, it also makes sense from a class perspective because if you have a very expensive resource such as meat, the rich are going to get it, not the poor. It turns out that in India, they do eat the cows. It's the untouchables. It's the lowest class people. And they eat the cows when they die. So by having a prohibition tied to a religious system, the rich people, the well-off, don't eat the cows. The poorest people get them. And since they're not going to be eating the cows, they don't feed them. And so the food's available for the people. And this produces other important ecological adaptations. Uh, since the cows are considered uh, sacred animals, they're allowed to freely graze. So they eat grass and weeds, twigs, sticks. They eat things that don't compete with the human food chain, and they produce an important source of energy for the populace. India has been deforested for 3,000 years. People burn down the trees as cooking fuel. 
today and for centuries, many people have used cow dung as a cooking source. In the Old West, pioneers did the same thing with what they called buffalo chips. You took dried buffalo dung, and it provides a good, slow-burning, good heat-producing fuel source. So by allowing the cows to freely graze, they're able to optimize the use of these food resources that don't compete with humans and provide them for humans in another form of fuel to cook with. So Harris makes the argument that there's all these ecological adaptations that come from food prohibitions. Uh, and around the world, we find a variety of food prohibitions that are directly tied to religious belief systems. For instance, the Simbaga of New Guinea normally don't eat their pigs. Most of their pigs are slaughtered in one enormous butchering session that feeds people for miles and miles around. And they don't slaughter their pigs until they reach a certain critical point in terms of their environmental impact. But that's often determined by religious ritual and political convenience. Uh, one of the arguments that Roy Rappaport made was that you slaughtered your pigs when you reached a point at having serious conflict with your neighbors. And the pig feasts were basically the opportunity that you had to invite all your friends to join your alliance. And the people that came to the pig feast were then recruited for war. And so restricting the pig consumption to specific periods of time had an important adaptation. The salted pigs then became the meat that the warriors ate. And the salt and the pig became an important part of adaptation, the standing in the sun for hours on end, day after day, sweating during battles or preparing for battles. So there are all these adaptive aspects of eating the pigs at certain times. So what Marvin Harris would contend is that cultural practices themselves are subjected to natural selection, that cultures that adapt certain patterns of behavior are more likely to survive and be successful, and that these beliefs about their adaptations then may become transformed into secondary institutions, basically religious beliefs that justify the ecological behaviors. One of the other things that Marvin Harris and his materialist approach have emphasized is an elaboration on this cultural systems model that we introduced in an earlier lecture. The idea that cultures can be understood as having three major dimensions. The infrastructure, the technical and economic aspects of a society. The structure, the social organization, the way that groups are organized and coordinated. And then the superstructure the ideology, the mental levels. Marvin Harris elaborated upon this in pointing out that not only do we have a productive infrastructure, how we get our energy, but a reproductive infrastructure, how we reproduce the population. He emphasized the important distinctions between the domestic or family-based organizations and the broader political organizations or political economy of society. And he emphasized the importance of distinguishing beliefs and behaviors we might reinforce that with the notions of the ideal versus real norms. But he also had uh, elaborated on the notion that the expressive culture, religion, mythology, cosmologies, were part of a system that might be best understood in terms of their reflection of material conditions. We'll use this structure later in the course. For instance, in module three, we will look at things such as the infrastructure, the mode of production, 
how it is that people get their energy. We'll also look at the modes of reproduction, sex and family and marriage. And we'll look at how these infrastructural aspects of human cultures are related to the social organization through the economic systems. So the economic systems can be seen as a kind of interface between productive technologies and social organization. In terms of social organization, we'll emphasize the uh, different forms of family and kinship and how people organize their lives. We'll also look at some of the universal divisions of labor within domestic economy, how gender and age roles distinguish what it is that people are expected to do. And then in the context of political economy, we'll look not only at the social organization within groups, but how people organize their relations externally to other groups. And we'll look at how neo-evolutionary theory and the idea of sociocultural evolution has been embodied in the notion of a number of distinct levels of political organization, bands, tribes, chiefdoms, and states as sort of the natural outcomes of particular subsistence patterns. And we'll look at how these more complex societies begin to emphasize a social stratification, a division of a group into distinct strata within that society, the strata that sometimes have an important role in allocating resources and creating inequalities. And we'll look at it both in terms of general inequality as well as the more specific aspects of sexual stratification. Why is it that women in so many societies are subordinated in the political and economic systems? And we'll look at superstructure, the ideas of language and communication and how they affect human behavior. We'll look at the processes of socialization as really being a function of superstructure, the ideas that people have about how they should organize their life. And we'll look at the roles of values and religion and cosmology and ultimately expressive culture, things like myth and fables and folklore, religious systems that we will contend are important reflections of the psychology produced within a group that in essence will come to understand things such as ethnicity and group psychology, the relationship between culture as a collective phenomena and individual psychology as a manifestation of a variety of different cultural relations. We'll not only examine how it is that the material conditions of life and the social conditions of life can be seen as important factors in shaping individual and group psychology, but also look at how the beliefs the values and the religion can also be seen as significant inputs into the socialization process. Ultimately, in the context of a psychocultural model, we'll look at how these ideas of the three different levels of culture can be combined to get a uh, richer understanding of how it is that culture not only produces differences between groups and similarities within groups, but ultimately the more challenging question, how is it that culture produces individual differences within a single culture. How is it that these models can help us avoid the, the trap of stereotypes and at the same time use an understanding of culture to explain both commonalities within a group and the intracultural, the within cultural variation that exists. We'll see that culture has the potential to not only allow us to understand differences, within between cultures but also within them. One of the perspectives that emerged within anthropology in the 1950s 
is now thought of in terms of a cognitive anthropology approach. And these approaches were concerned not only with how do the natives think, but perhaps even more importantly with questions about the universal aspects of the human mind. How is it that our common biology as a species is reflected in the ways that we end up thinking about the world? One of the important uh, foundational aspects of this approach now is referred to as structuralism and was strongly influenced by the French anthropologist Claude Lévi-Strauss. What Lévi-Strauss studied was mythology. He studied people's stories about the world. And one of the things that he came to note was that there were remarkably similar stories around the world, and that even where the stories were different, they often had a similar structure. What Levi-Strauss emphasized was the notion that human storytelling, myth-making, reflected something about the fundamental structures of the human brain slash mind. And in particular, the idea that humans are inclined to think of the world in terms of dualities and oppositions. So, for instance, he would analyze myths in terms of how they uh, would reflect uh, a dual organization of the world. You know, what men did versus what women did. Or what happened in the village versus what happened in the forest. Or what happened above the ground versus what happened below the ground. And this idea that human cultural beliefs are uh, sort of intrinsically disposed towards creating stories that exploit the idea of opposition and duality uh, was even applied to our own culture. The English anthropologist Edmund Leach took Levi Strauss's idea and applied them to an analysis of Genesis. And so he was able to show that in Genesis there were all these fundamental oppositions, light and dark, and what was in the oceans and what was on the land, and what happened before and what happened after, and how male gave rise to female, and how all these fundamental dualities and oppositions that anthropologists were fond of pointing out in other cultures and mythologies were also some of the fundamental structural and organizing features of our own religious traditions. Structuralism, however, gave rise to a, another way of thinking about the world that was different than the neo-evolutionary perspectives. And one of the things that they emphasized was the importance of interpreting myth, interpreting religious systems, interpreting cultural beliefs as a kind of template, a program for how human beings behave. In contrast to the neo-evolutionary perspectives that emphasized how it was that material conditions structured these secondary institutions, religion and belief, etc. Structuralism emphasized that the beliefs, the myths themselves, were guidelines for human behavior, that humans did what they did often because of these ideological dynamics rather than because of some fundamental material conditions. For instance, it's clear that many Native American groups uh, did not practice agriculture. And it wasn't because they were ignorant of the possibility of planting seeds. They often traded for corn from their neighbors, and they knew their neighbors grew corn. But some Native American groups saw agriculture as being an inappropriate behavior. And some are quoted saying things like, you know, 
why should we tear open the breast of our mother earth to eat? We don't need to do this. So cultures may have certain patterns of behavior that are not strictly ecological adaptation, but reflect some of the broader dynamics of belief that are part of ancient cultural traditions. Structuralism was not well received in much of anthropology, particularly American anthropology, because it postulated many theories about humans and human behavior that really weren't capable of being tested. There wasn't some way that we could go out and systematically collect data to show that one interpretation versus another interpretation was right or wrong. So structuralist approaches have not been very popular in most of American anthropology. American anthropology developed a very different kind of approach to understanding human cognition. And this is referred to sometimes as ethnoscience, which anthropologists would collect data that was focused on how people organized the world. And many of these approaches were directly derived from linguistics and understanding some of the, the fundamental binary oppositions that Levi-Strauss had talked about, but instead placed them in the context of understanding how they organize human thought in ways that then are impacted upon social organization. For instance, one of the things that early cognitive anthropologists, ethnoscientists did was to understand kinship systems as based upon these fundamental oppositions. And sometimes the way in which they would collect their data would be a bunch of questions. You know, who's most different? Your cousin or your nephew? Who's more different from you? Your uncle or your cousin? Who's more similar to your mother? Your aunt or your sister? And so by asking all these questions and basically looking at the kinds of cognitive preferences that people had, they were able to extract kinship systems as a series of binary principles. You know, you, male kin are always more important than female kin. Older kin are always more important than younger kin. Lineal kin are always more important than collateral kin. And so began to reconstruct our understanding of kinship systems is based upon some of the same kinds of ideas that Levi-Strauss had, which is to say humans have fundamental tendencies to create these binary oppositions and then to create systems of meaning out of these binary contrasts. The uh, cognitive approaches within the ethnoscience traditions also engaged in a variety of other understandings of human behavior. And some of these were based upon what we would call elicitation frameworks. So for instance, anthropologists would try to understand things such as um, the organization of conceptual frameworks regarding firewood. How many different kinds of firewood are there? Well, you're probably a little challenged on that. There's charcoal and wood, what else? <laughs> well, you know, people that use firewood every day may have a half dozen or a dozen different kinds of firewood. So how do they think about firewood? So we ask them, you know, tell me all the kinds of firewood. Okay, you've called, told me about, uh, you know, faggots, which is a word used to refer to a particular kind of firewood. You've told me about kindling. You've told me about tinder. What else is there? Well, there's logs. Okay, what else is there? And you keep asking, what else is there until they say, that's enough. There's not any more kinds of firewood. And then you say, okay, 
How are these different kinds related? So you might say, is tinder more like kindling or more like faggots? Is tinder more like logs or is it more like um, you know, kindling? And so asking people to make all these differentiations then reflects something about the structure of their thought. And so we then get some notion of a cognitive map of people's understanding of reality. So the ethnoscientific approaches ultimately became very quantitative. And they would use things like multidimensional scaling and cluster analysis and entailment analysis to try to use these formal approaches to get at the underlying structures of human thought. And so they sort of took off in a somewhat isolated branch of anthropology that today often publishes more in psychology and cognitive science than within anthropology. But they've revealed some very interesting things about human behavior. For instance, by asking questions such as, you know, how many colors are there? They've discovered that cultures have very different uh, extents of cultural vocabularies for color. Some cultures only have two colors that might be glossed as white and black, but really come out to be light and dark. Well, it turns out that if you add a third color term to your system, almost everybody adds red. And then the next set of differentiations have to do with the blue-green spectrum. So it turns out that we can understand something about both how the human brain is organized, because the sequences of color are remarkably similar in terms of their elaboration cross-culturally. But then we can also understand how societal conditions affect that structure of vocabulary because the more complex a society becomes, the more likely it is to increase the size of its color vocabulary. So these ethnoscience approaches, once again, both enabled anthropologists to understand something about human universals, as well as human differences in what produced those. Today, most of anthropology is characterized as postmodernism. It's a somewhat curious to me because, in a very real sense, anthropology has, since the beginning of the 20th century, been postmodern. What do we mean by this? Well, modernism is sort of associated with the idea of, of rationalism and science and objective understandings of the world. And what anthropology has emphasized since its inception is that what is important is how people understand the world. This idea of cultural relativism and beliefs and behavior relative to the cultural system. Today, postmodernism may be discussed as a hermeneutic or interpretive approach. What are the meanings that people have? How do they interpret certain symbols? What are their insiders' view of the world? And how do we understand this cognized environment, the way that people conceptualize the world in relationship to their behavior? Today, some people are considered to be extreme cultural relativists, which emphasizes the idea that there cannot be any objective understandings of the world. We can't even really hope to translate from one culture to another. Culture's conceptual frameworks are so radically different that translation is really only going to be partial and never complete. And people who identify with this postmodern trend tend to reject things such as the scientific anthropology, the ethnoscience approaches, 
cultural materialism, functionalism, and ultimately biology. They have, however, become a dominant force within anthropology, and they're often at the center of anthropology departments breaking in half, where you know, half of the anthropology department wants to be scientific anthropology, and the other half wants to be interpretivist, and they don't seem to be able to find a common ground. However, most anthropologists today still have some sense that we have an integrated discipline, uh, although they don't integrate it. Most anthropologists are uh, focused more on describing cultures and understanding them and understanding the local dynamics, but not trying to develop general causal laws, general explanations of human behavior. However, within postmodern anthropology, there are uh, important traditions that have developed that have enhanced anthropology's understanding of the world. And these are sometimes lumped as feminist anthropology. And feminist anthropology really started to become of age in the 1960s and 1970s when an increasing number of female anthropologists began to ask questions about how do male perspectives affect the way that anthropology has come to understand humans and human cultures. Uh, while the majority of anthropologists getting degrees today are female, uh, before the 1960s, the vast majority were males. And as anthropologists were increasingly influenced by women's perspectives, we began to ask different questions. For instance, even evolutionary um, approaches had to begin to reflect on the idea that the notion of you know, humans evolving as hunters was really reflecting male points of view. Um, how did females as gatherers affect the development of human culture? And are there different ideas about a human evolution that derive from female perspectives? For instance, did humans evolve because we use tools? Or did humans evolve because we were selected for the ability to form long-lasting relationships that made us committed to others, including our dependent offspring? And feminist anthropology increasingly raised the question of what kinds of things have been studied in the past? And to what degree did anthropologists really convey men's points of view rather than cultural points of view? It was apparent that in most settings, anthropologists as males had limited access to the female domains of life. How did this end up reflected in the kinds of theories and models and explanations that anthropologists developed. So today, feminist anthropology has become sort of a core aspect of anthropology. Uh, some people may not feel comfortable about it as a kind of theoretical perspective, but you can't pick up a textbook on anthropology today that doesn't either have a separate chapter on gender and culture or makes a conscientious effort to weave gender perspectives throughout the text, understanding how gender is manifested in a subsistence, and economy, and family life, and political organization, and religion, cosmology, etc. So this once again reflects one of the fundamental principles of anthropology, namely that it has continued to grow by bringing in other perspectives, by being more pluralistic, by uh, entertaining uh, the ability to integrate different points of view into an understanding of human behavior. However, in spite of some of the reservations about postmodern anthropology, 
I think we also have to recognize that postmodern anthropology is really core to anthropology's approaches. The idea that all of our knowledge is culturally based, culturally framed, and consequently only a partial understanding of the world. That there is no objective reality available to human beings. There is an objective reality out there. We might call that the operational environment. But human beings don't exist in that operational environment. We function in a cognized environment, one that we come to understand mediated through our language and other aspects of our culture. And today, anthropologists have begun to uh, abandon some of our classic notions about culture is this body of knowledge that's transmitted from one generation to another and come to recognize that Culture might be viewed as negotiated. Each generation sort of decides what they keep and what they throw out and what they add. That what's cultural versus subcultural becomes increasingly ambiguous, particularly when we take into consideration the idea that within any given group, no matter how small, there are different perspectives, different points of view. So the idea of culture being polyvocal or represented as polyphony, is the idea that there's not just one version of culture, but there are going to be segmented versions, not just you know, male and female versions of culture, but versions held by the young and by the old, by those in the impoverished classes and those in the richer classes, by those who are successful and those unsuccessful, by those who are religious practitioners versus those who may be uh, naturalist or uh, specialists in naturalist and understandings of the world. So today, culture is not this homogeneous thing, but something that we recognize is constantly changing, being modified, and viewed in different ways by different people. Indeed, culturally, may, culture may not only be internally variant, but contested. For instance, um, you know, what is American culture? Do we believe in equal rights for men and women? Well, some people would say, well, yes, that's the American way. Why didn't we pass the Equal Rights Amendment? You know, but if we try to understand you know, male and female perspectives on the world, we're left with the recognition that culture is, in some cases, ambiguous, contentious, contested, and viewed in different ways by different people within the same group. So we no longer have this notion that culture is somehow this homogeneous body of knowledge that everybody gets. It's more something that we take different pieces of depending on our gendered status, our age, our resources, our specialization in the society, etc. Today there is a re-emerging point of view in anthropology, um, one that is not yet fully embraced, but which from my perspective I think is, is the next wave. Uh, it may require the death of a whole generation of anthropologists, the avowed radical postmodernists, the radical cultural relativists, but I think the idea is that sometimes are labeled sociobiology, evolutionary biology, evolutionary psychology are going to come back into the mainstream of anthropology as an inevitable consequence of anthropology's biocultural perspective. Now, I said so these perspectives are sort of the skunk at the party because even somebody like me who studies religion and mythology and cross-cultural relations and you know, embraces ideas about the importance of other cultural perspectives, 
have often given a really hostile stare when I say, well, you know, it's interesting how you can understand some of the universals of religion in terms of the fundamental structures of the brain. People, oh, no, religion's got nothing to do with the brain. It's always an arbitrary cultural construction. I'm thinking, well, that's true. Why do cultures everywhere have religion? When we say that every culture has family, anthropologists are happy with thinking about how this reflects in adaptive dynamics that's also reflected in the animal world. But when it comes to religion, anthropologists still want to embrace this notion of a complete cultural relativism and arbitrariness. So it's generally rejected within cultural anthropology, but we're increasingly recognizing that there are important biological constraints on human behavior. Humans are not infinitely malleable, and that there are certain things that are universal across cultures that can only be explained in terms of a biological approach. For instance, later we'll discuss some of the universals of mate preference. Turns out in every culture, men tend to prefer younger, nubile women, and women tend to prefer older, richer men. May make sense from both sexes' point of view, but how can it be a cultural belief if it's so universal? We, in some cases, need to turn to an understanding of human biology, natural selection, as a set of processes that have produced certain kinds of behavioral preferences. Today, evolutionary science is in a bit of a paradigm shift of its own. And one of the fundamental issues that's coming to the forefront is a, a set of debates that focus on group selection versus individual selection. Evolutionary science is based upon the assumption that we as a species have evolved because certain things have been adapted for individuals. Yet we're also starting to recognize that there may have been cases in which whole groups were selected for because of their characteristics and begin to recognize that some of those characteristics may have more to do with culture than biology. So today an evolutionary psychology concerned with humans acquired nature is becoming an increasingly important part of the development of the discipline. And it's going to be to that topic that we turn to in our next lectures. So to summarize here, we have a history of ideas in anthropology that has shifted from biological evolution to modernism and postmodernism. And today there's a kind of crisis in anthropology in which it is often thought that biological explanations and cultural explanations are fundamentally incompatible. I think that we will eventually return to an integration of those ideas. What are some of the persistent themes independent of these broader theoretical trends? One has to do with understanding cultural systems and cultural systems as systemic determinants of human development, human behavior, human psychology. There's also a persistent emphasis on the local theories, the emic perspectives, how cultures understand themselves, in essence, cultural relativism. And so one of the challenges that faces anthropology today as a discipline is basically, will anthropology's holistic past persist? Will we continue as a discipline that self-consciously tries to integrate an understanding of human biology and human culture? Or will we splinter into separate camps, as they did at Stanford, where now the biological scientists and the so-called scientific uh, anthropologists are separated from the postmodern interpretive traditions. What I'm going to try to do in this course is to blend these perspectives, to both think about human biology as a set of contributory factors 
a set of constraints, and to think of culture as the programs that write on that biology, that exploit different aspects of it for different purposes, but nonetheless emerges out of a single set of human conditions, conditions in which our biological nature and our cultural nature were inextricably linked in the evolution of human beings. And this will be the topic of the next lecture.